Welcome to the Sports Fan Radio podcast. We spoke with former AFL umpire Sean Ryan shortly after he retired in 2020. At 42 years of age, after 17 years, 350 games and seven grand finals, he decided to call it a career. Our special guest, former AFL umpire, Sean Ryan, recently retired. Last match, the preliminary finals, Brisbane and Geelong. Were you close to getting the grand final? I suppose they never tell you how close. Obviously, there's two prelim finals, there's six umpires, so you're a 50-50 chance. You're, you always think you're, you're some sort of chance, but I'm one that never guarantees myself a spot. So I've been lucky enough to get the good call many times, so I can't really uh, whinge when it doesn't go my way. How many grand finals did you umpire? I did eight. That's a tremendous effort. That's a great record. Originally from Warrnambool. Yep. And um, a barrister by trade, I understand. Yes, that's true. How did you get into umpiring? Well, originally I grew up, I mean, as you said, in Warrnambool. So it's just a footy and cricket sort of town. So you're footy in winter and cricket in summer. But um, my background was horse racing. So my, my dad was a jockey, then a trainer when I was growing up as a kid. And my uncle won a Melbourne Cup as a jockey when I was a kid. So we all wanted to be jockeys. But although I'm not big, I became too big to be a jockey. So got into footy, got into cricket. And then I just needed a part-time job, to be honest, winning our school cross countries and that sort of <laughs> stuff. So a mate of mine who was uh, running a bit said, come and Come an umpire and I just did it for the money. Went to uni and kept it going with no real ambition to umpire AFL footy. Yeah, as luck would have it, one day I was umpiring with a guy who the AFL Academy were looking at and they decided they didn't they didn't want him but they wanted me to come down and that was probably about in nineteen ninety seven I think and uh, yeah it all went from there and your AFL career started in 2003 yeah that's correct so I did the 2002 VFL grand final which was a classic grand final and basically that stellar Geelong premiership team was the VFL premiership team in 2002 with Ablett and um, you know Bartel and Chapman and all those sort of players and then yeah got an invite down to trial and what they used to do then is they'd invite say a dozen people Australia wide for say two spots and you do the the old pre-season competition which was the NAB, NAB Cup or Wizard Cup or whatever. They used to change the name every second year. We got about two or three of those games. And then at the end of it all, they'd pick two who they wanted to, to get on the list. So I was lucky enough to get on and started in 2003. Your career went through 2011. And uh, I understand at that stage you were about 36 and you retired. What caused you to retire at 36? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I, the short of it is I, I just didn't enjoy it anymore. And, you know, my, my mantra has always been only, only do things that I enjoy. and, and um, I couldn't really, you know, at the time put a finger on what it was, but I was, I'm juggling a lot of things. As you mentioned, you know, I've got a career outside of footy. At that stage, I had three really young kids. Um, I was living in Torquay. So it was quite a juggle. And I think in retrospect, when I look back as well, from probably about my second year, I was getting thrown into most of the big games. And so I was doing finals and grand finals and Friday nights and Anzac days. Uh, a lot um, and at the time you're sort of really enjoying it but there's a lot of pressure that comes with those matches and so after 200 sort of games maybe 100 150 of those were really big blockbuster games and I think maybe part of it was that that just starts to wear you down the scrutiny of it all after a period of time so yeah the short of it is I did the 2011 grand final when it wasn't really doing much for me and I thought well if a grand final isn't doing much for you it's probably time to hang it up so I did and then yeah I was I was lucky enough three years later I got a call from Wayne Campbell and Hayden Kennedy asking for a lunch I didn't know what they were on about and yeah they asked me to come back and I didn't really have any interest in coming back to be honest but my kids were really young and they couldn't really remember me umpiring and then when they got wind of 
um, the offer to come back. They were pretty excited by it. They were now old enough playing footy or that sort of stuff. So, yeah, I, I sort of was interested to see whether I could get back after three years off and lucky enough came back in, um, came back in 2015. One more question from me before I turn it over to the rest of the panel. 45 now at the top of your craft, why retire now? Yeah, it's another really good question and um, a lot of people have been asking me in the last few weeks, but I always wanted to retire with a few things and when I came back, when I retired the first time around, I really didn't enjoy the sport at all. I just had enough. I thought if I come back, my main motivation isn't really to do grand finals, but just to try and love the sport again and that I want to retire with fond memories of really enjoying it. And I'm in that place. And the other thing that I wanted to ensure is that I finished sort of at the top of my game, not really struggling. And, and I've seen a lot of great umpires and they've probably just gone that one or two years too long. And there's a, the next brand of umpires that come through, they probably only remember them as really battling and just struggling. And I, know I sort of didn't want to get to that stage. And it's not to say next year I wouldn't have been able to still perform to a good level, but I'd rather sort of go one earlier than one late. Um, and so it was all lining up well. The other thing is with my legal career, you're sort of always limited a bit as to what you can do because, um, you know, you get offered some large trials and you need to knock them back because, you know, you just can't say to a, a judge on a Thursday, well, I'm flying to Perth for a derby, so I can't be here Friday or Monday. You know, it just, just can't be done. So it means that you're, you're taking some limited briefs and that sort of stuff. And so, you know, at 45, I'd achieved everything and I thought, Feels like a nice time just to uh, put a full stop on it and, and move on to other motivations. This season obviously created a whole different set of uh, normals, if you like. How did you cope, given your profession, with also umpiring and having to be in a bubble? Yeah, it was a really, really um, interesting time. So my story this year was I, I was appointed to a Sydney game. I can't remember. It must have been about round six. And I think it was about 12 hours before we left they said, pack everything because you won't be coming back for a while. And the AFL were good. They knew my situation. And I had some trials that were booked in. And so I said, I can only give you two or three weeks and I've got to come back. And in that time, that's when all the courts shut down. And so they all went online. So as it turned out, I was just running trials in my apartment. Um, I didn't have my family with me at that stage. So it was pretty easy. I was basically just umpiring training and and uh, working. And it worked out really well. You know, I was able to work pretty well from the apartment. Um, that we were we were in, it all worked really well for me. And then the family came a couple of months ago and that's when I sort of decided to cut back a little bit more on work so that we could spend some time together. Uh, but yeah, it was a, it's a pretty crazy time. And as you say, you know, some of my experiences this year are just incredible. To let you in just on one of them, I got appointed to, so I went from Sydney to the Gold Coast, at the Gold Coast for about 12 days and I got appointed to a game in Adelaide, flew to Adelaide when we got there, we had to fill out a form. And one of the forms said, what states have you been in in the last 14 days? And there was about 15 umpires, field, boundary and goals. And myself and another guy had come from Sydney. And about three days earlier, it had been named a hotspot. And I thought, this is not going to be good. So we had to declare that 14 days earlier, we we're in Sydney. So we got to the hotel after that. The federal police knocked on our hotel door within... 15 minutes of us being there, said, you're not leaving this hotel for 14 days. <laughs> um, and so, you know, we obviously contacted the AFL, but basically for about four hours there, they said, you won't be leaving this hotel for 14 days, this room actually. Uh, and then the AFL um, did some work behind the scenes. And the only way we could leave the hotel is if within the next few hours, they chartered a private jet out of there. 
Um, so what they did is they chartered a private jet, which happens to be the same jet I think that the Hemsworth brothers use from the Gold Coast to, to Adelaide. They had two umpires on there. Those umpires got to the ground at 7.04 for a 7.10 start. <laughs> and we jumped back on that private jet and back to the Gold Coast. Yeah, and that all happened. And I don't think many people knew that, but that game was pretty close to not going ahead because they just didn't have umpires. So that that stuff is – that was happening like every week, some story like that, you know. So um, they've done a great job, the AFL, to get it, get the season done. All right, I'll turn it over to the rest of the panel, ask Sean some questions. Yep, Sean. Uh, Paul Dalligan here. I do the rugby league segment. Um, Cameron Smith is the talk of the town at the moment. He's always known as the second umpire out there on the field. Um, nice. who, who came closest to that in the AFL ranks in terms of telling you how to do your job? Well, there's a few. It'd be hard to narrow it down to a podium. But um, oh, look, I must say, from the time I started to the time now, it's changed dramatically. You know, but back in the day, you had, um, you know, Wayne Carey, Glenn Archer, Barry Hall, these types that... Um, yeah, they'd come charging. And so uh, then the culture's changed a little bit. I think Jeff Geeson was the first that brought in zero tolerance for abuse towards umpires. And, Paul, you'd know, like, in, in rugby, they refer to their refs as, sir, you know, yes, sir, where's the mark, this sort of stuff. And basically it was ingrained into AFL culture that you'd just tee off, you know, at the umpires. And so the last 20 years that's changed a bit. There's still a few guys that – and they're generally the smarter guys. You know, you'll see, you know, a Jared Ruffhead or – back in the day or Joel Selwood these guys know the rules they're pretty clever and if you've made a blue they'll, they'll know straight away and it won't take them long to trot up to you and let you know uh, but they're pretty good about it those guys you know like it's what's on the field stays on the field and um, you know you see them afterwards and it's uh, it's all good. Sean you've got a uh, unique perspective in the game from Warnable and from the what you've told us, you could give us some comments on how you uh, see the health of the game at the moment because I must say I'm getting a bit sick of the negative, the negatives about the game. I just wonder what your views on the general health of the game at the moment. Yeah, it's a really good question, John, because it frustrates me a little bit as well. And I, I think, and this is only my view, so I'm not saying it's correct, it's just my um, subjective view, but I think a lot of it's to do with the entrainment of the media. You know, they get a story going that the game's in terrible health and then it's sort of uh, the collective buy into that. And so it's a really interesting topic. I mean, there's a lot of rule changes and interpretation changes to deal with congestion and all those types of thing and the eyesore of this game. And everyone buys into the narrative that the game's in a horrible state by reason of it and all those types of things. And that might be an individual person's subjective belief that they don't like the state of the game. And I respect that. But, you know, my experience is that the great grand finals that they remember, if you look at them, they were tough, hard, contested games where they were 60 each, you know, the drawn grand final, the the Sydney West Coast games, the 09 games, uh, West Coast Collingwood recently, those types of games. So footy over my time's evolved. And it's you tend to think that perhaps this is just we're in an evolutionary phase where um, we'll come out to it. But the risk I see is opening up the game to a dramatic extent. You might get free-flowing great footing. You'll get a lot of blowouts as well, though. You'll get a lot of 100-point massacres because once a team gets going, you won't be able to stop them. And so part of me says, look, I think there needs to be a balance because there is a lot of congestion around the footy at times and all that type of stuff. But, you know, some of it's just good, hard, tough footy as well. And so I think it just depends on how you view the game and how you see it. But um, it's certainly a lot more difficult to umpire now because of 
the numbers around the footy, but there's still an aspect to it that's, um, you know, quite attractive from my point of view. Gelding here, just on that, being a bit older and all that, we, we said modern footy today looks like an under-11 game of 20, 30 years ago, just a rolling pack of players that goes in there. And the interpretation on dropping the ball, disposing of the ball, like players just seem to, it hits them and they drop it or they throw it. Yeah, and these things just don't seem to be picked up whether they're wanting that. Do you see modern day football with this rolling pack and just the kind of scrum pass over to someone else? They just grab the ball, the incorrect disposal. Further on to that, there seems to be rules of the week or interpretations change from a Friday night game to a Sunday game or from week to week. Are you instructed on that or are you instructed just to let the ball go and let them move on? Um, So, yeah, so the first part of your question, um, holding the ball's always been an issue in my, you know, two decades. But, I mean, I think there's two parts to that. The first thing is I always, when I ask this question with the media, cheekily say to them, if I was to ask you now to explain to the public what holding the ball is, could you do that? And every single media person says, no, I couldn't Mm. because it's a very complicated rule. But they are the people that are informing the public. And the reality is the most fundamental basis of that rule, that is that if a player has has not got a prior opportunity and is tackled, he doesn't need to dispose of the ball. If that ball is knocked out in the tackle or he just attempts to dispose, it's play on. That's what the rule book says. The problem is no one can get their head around that and understand that. So there's all of this... How did he get rid of it? How did he get rid of it? Well, he doesn't need to get rid of it. And so the problem is that that's the commentary that's in the media and then that informs the collective as to what's occurring. So there is numerous times where there's an assumption that it's holding the ball when we've got it wrong and it's just blatantly correct free kick. The other part of your question is, is a good point is that with the volume of players around the ball, it does become a lot harder to see. And so what we've had to do in the last probably six to eight years is effectively have three umpires umpiring at all times as opposed to, you know, the old system of just one umpiring. And so we're all trying to get different angles and effectively, even if you're not the umpire in control, if you see a free kick, you're just blowing your whistle. And so that's how we're sort of attempting to to deal with that part of it. But the congestion part of it um, in my time, I think there's been 50 rule changes and interpretation. I'm just plucking numbers yeah. um, to deal with to deal with that. But really, it just comes down to tactics and coaches' instructions. And at the end of the day, um, if they want to slow the play up or if they want to get numbers around the ball, they'll find a way. But you're starting to see teams like Richmond who are having a lot of success and they're playing on regularly at all costs and they're, you know, first option footy, they're opening it up. And you can see over history that teams that have success generally get followed. And so my feeling is, and I might be wrong, that that, that style of footy might become more common um, as coaches start to adapt and then uh, all of a sudden we start to get a better brand of footy perhaps. Sean, I take it that um, you're not... Uh, mindful of changing any rules, but if there were were any rules that you think could be changed, tweaked, whatever, uh, what would it be? It's a good question. I have uh, probably something I'd need to put some thought into, but I think with the you know, and I might be in the mon- minority with this, but I I like to uh, adjust our interpretations marginally so they're more consistent with what. 
the majority expect, what the footy world expects. And so if we're talking around the holding the ball rule, generally um, the instruction is, is if a player's had a prior opportunity and he's tackled, the rule book says he must then dispose of it immediately. We probably give them more time than immediately. And then the other aspect to the rule is if he hasn't had a prior opportunity, he gets a reasonable time to dispose. So more time than we give them probably more than a reasonable time. So what tends to happen is everyone's screaming for holding the ball and we're giving them some time. Then eventually there's a handball or a kick and we're calling play on. And you'll see the odd time where players stop assuming it's holding the ball or the crowd are going manic. And I think we could that's an aspect that we could probably tighten up. And I think it's something that the AFL are looking at. I don't subscribe to this getting rid of prior opportunity. If you, if you talk through that practically, it would really... It's, it's a nonsense because we have, I think, on average about 130 or 150 tackles a game, of which 70 get disposed of. So you're talking 70 holding the balls a oh, game. Sorry, I just, just one question. The, the, the women's game has uh, gone ahead in uh, leaps and bounds, we know. Where do you see the women's game uh, on the horizon? Uh, I think, first point, I think it's one of the best things I've seen in the last 20 years because... I mean, it just opens up football to 50% more of the population. I've been away for four months and the people that were house-sitting my house, she's a really talented um, netball player at State League and she's just started playing footy for Torquay here and then has got an invite to Richmond. And and she said she loved footy as a girl but was never encouraged and couldn't play it. Um, And she would be a prime example of a very talented athlete who would be playing AFL football. And so Mm. not only that... From our perspective, it's now opening up uh, female umpires. Then, you know, a lot more interest from females in in supporter base and all that sort of stuff. So I think what you're going to see is some people are critical of the skill level presently, but these are people, you know, a lot of the players that are presently playing are come from other sports, um, weren't encouraged to play AFL footy as juniors, um, that sort of thing. Now, that's all changing. You're seeing mass participation at junior rates. And I think, yeah, in the next decade, that's um, one part of the AFL that's really going to take off. I think the, the injury part of it's a concern, but, um, yeah, it's it's exciting for the AFL. Can I just ask uh, on a, yeah. a lighter note, Sean, um, as a rugby league fan, I'm always interested when a player's lining up about to kick for goal and the yeah. opponent's there. And what I'm, I'm pretty certain he's not yelling out is, I hope you miss it. Is, is the sort of sledging that you'd get, is it, targeted to the person or is it just general banter and, and crap that they're yelling? Because it's it certainly looks quite vocal and animated. What Can you give us any examples of what you remember being yelled out to put someone off a goal? The goal part of it, I don't remember too much. I, I, I vividly remember, um, you know, I'll go to my grave remembering an incident before a first bounce in a, in a game at Etihad Stadium and uh, Ben Hudson, who used to play for the Bulldogs, the game was delayed by two minutes and the opposing Ruckman, who I won't name, had just moved to this club and he must have found out about some family issues and uh, some other things. And he had two minutes of tirade that, I mean, it was just quite incredible. And I eventually had to go, hey, Ben, man, that's enough. You know, none, of, none of it was swearing or any of this, but it was just incredible. One of the most offensive minute or two before the start of a game I've ever heard. So, And I actually caught up with him prior to a game he's an assistant coach now and he, yeah he remembered that incident <laughs> so it goes on it happens a lot less now there's a lot of mutual respect I must say between the players now you know back in the day you were trying to hurt the opponent and you know now you just see them do things that where they're playing tough football but they 
I'm mindful that, you know, that could be them at the other end of this. If they go in low and break a leg or they sling tackle and knock a guy out, you know, you see these things now where there's a bit more mutual respect. No, and you can see that, like, you, you get the odd example where teammates knock each other out just accidentally, and you can see that. You know, the Dangerfield one in the grand final, you can see. I mean, in real time, that happens in a split second. He's just punched the ball and goes to brace, and, um, you know, these these things happen. So, yeah, I think that um, now with the concussion thing and with, you know, the range of injuries and then all the rule changes that have come in to combat all of that, there's a mindfulness with the, the players when they're attacking the ball now. Uh, Gelding again, Sean, just moving off that kind of thing. Pressure on bouncing the ball and compared to, say, throwing up and things like that, and especially yeah. with the development probably of female umpires coming in. Do you believe it's more important to get the bounce right or should we move on and throw it up? Or Yeah. Know, is, that, is it more important to get umpires that know the rules and know the footy <laughs> rather than have the pressure on them to be able to bounce the ball properly? Yeah, I, I tend to go that way. And I think my my view sort of tainted by some experiences where some of the best umpires, you know, one of my good friends is the best umpire I've ever seen, never umpired a game of AFL footy because, and he's bound, he was quite a good bouncer, but not quite up to AFL standard. You know, there's an example of a guy I've got no doubt would have umpired an AFL grand final and never umpired a game at all. Yeah, I think so. I, I do get the tradition. Like, it's a very unique thing. And um, particularly people from overseas that come and watch our game, they're just, you know, they yeah. they just can't get over the it. fact that this is a, this is occurring. So whether it's kept in some form, like to start each quarter, and you just get the best bouncer in to start the quarter. But look, that part of the game um, means that we do lose. The reality is, we do lose good decision makers who can't bounce well. And I've seen it over my career many times. Uh, and then you also um, do lose some senior umpires because the reality is once you get to 40 plus it's a pretty hard task yeah. to do you know to keep smash smacking it in so i get both sides of the argument i lean towards decision making that, is the most important and that kind of leads to just round the ground should you just go in ball it up and who's ever there just goes for the tap out rather than you know waiting for the ruckman to get there and do that just you know once you made your decision hold you know the ball's held yeah. in Let's ball it up. Do you think that should be a change? Yeah, I, I'm with you on some of them. I mean, these Ruckman, uh, uh, you know, they're so exhausted by the third or fourth quarter that, you know, you mm. get the ball and you look over your shoulder and they're waving at you from 80 metres away. I love yeah. um, Shane Mumford's one of my favourites. And I swear I swear to God he's got – he gets an un, unwritten rule with his co-Ruckman, like, hey, let's just stick together here today, you know. <laughs> if I'm 80 yeah. metres away, you'd be with me here. I didn't see a big issue with it prior to the change you know the, I think if I if I'm to go back the main issue was like third man up third man um, yeah yep. and it really was a reaction to was it a I think it might have been a final in Sydney I did the game actually and one of one of the third men up came in and elbowed a guy in the jaw and broke his jaw I think it was Tippett maybe from memory and then it just blew up and then it came in the next year I can't remember any other time where someone got injured that being said I think the Ruckman like it because they were always getting elbows uh, sorry knees in the back and elbows yeah. in the head because they were perched under the ball and then some rover had come climbing over their back so um, look I get both sides but of if the story. You, if you ball it up 
you don't have to wait for the ruckman. Like two half forward flankers can go go for the tap oh, out. Hundred percent. Whether yeah. your question, if it's leading towards whether that would ha- assist with congestion, I'm not. I'm not a hundred percent sure. Like we do try and get in quickly and throw it up. And basically, when you call for the bounce, that's when a lot of the congestion is there already. My, my inkling is, like it or lump it, I, I've got a feeling perhaps that there might be at least a trial of at those around the ground bounces that people have to get back to positions, at least forward and defenders, um, to stop that congestion. Uh, so that, that might be something that they're thinking about bringing in. Um, Sean, a um, couple of things. Um... Is there such a thing as rule of the week? Uh, yeah, that was the other question. I was yeah. I didn't get to that. Uh, no, there's obviously not a rule of the week that is, um, you know, let's let's do this this week. My view of that is two things. One, I think, is a criticism perhaps of us and another one is just the way the media work. And that is on Friday night, we, we get a solid game for us is we average eight errors a game. That's a good solid performance for us. You know, if you weigh up, all their decisions in terms of like marks, was it 15 metres, all of these types of things. I think there's a thousand decisions a game. We, we average at eight errors. So we might have a deliberate out of bounds that we miss on Friday night footy. And then there'll be a narrative that, oh, they're going to be relaxing deliberate out of bounds this week. And then by Sunday, we're just paying a similar, we're paying a very similar incident. It's not rule of the week. We just made an error. Say on a Tuesday, we'll go through a, a large volume of footage of how we went on the weekend as a collective group. And we might, the coaches might determine that, look, we've missed, let's say, for example, six holding the balls prior opportunity look we missed six over the weekend now sometimes if that message is not too subtle you might have half or more of our group who are sort of erring on the side for that weekend of paying holding the ball on those 50 50 scenarios and then all of a sudden we've got you know 12 to 15 more holding the ball decisions uh, and that's where over the over the journey there's this tendency to say, oh, they're being harder on that this week. And then, you know, a week passes by and we start to correct and find that happy medium. Mm-hmm. And a lot, a lot of that comes around to is new, new rule interpretations where we sort of spend three or four weeks of trying to find that middle ground, what's appropriate. Sean, are you, um, are you actually consulted on rule changes prior to them being, in, like, when, when, one of the frustrations that I think we all have is the number of changes. There's no other competition or game in the world that changes the rules like AFL, except for maybe Formula One. That that must be frustrating for umpires that each year there seems to be these rule changes. And But are you consulted at all? Are you sort of a one of the groups that sort of say, listen, don't know? Not really. Yeah. We, um, our, our coach will be in the, in the party that has input into the rules. Um, and Steve Hocking, since he's come on, sort of had a more you know, collective approach to to all of that. No individual umpires. And I think it's something that needs to be thought about because when you're the soldier on the ground that has to implement it, <coughs> as soon as you get told of the rule change, you've got 32 people straight away who can tell you in five minutes how this is all going to play out and the, and the difficulties with it. I mean, I can give you an example of that if you like. When, when hands in the back, that rule came in, immediately we all thought, well, hang on, this, this is not going to work. The reason I understand the rationale for it was, oh, this will make it black and white for marking contests because you don't, ever, don't need to adjudicate a push-out anymore. And so it was explained to us that now it's black and white. I remember the meeting and um, one of us put up our hand and said, oh, okay, so, so what, what's a hand? 
and the person who was explaining it, you know, is looking at us stupidly like, what are you talking about? That's a hand. And so we're like, okay, so he's allowed to put four fingers in. That's what he's allowed to do that, is he? Or fist. Oh, no, no, he's not. Is he allowed to put three? Nah. And we got to this ridiculous discussion about two and a half fingers versus. (laughs) And so, and then what's a back? Is it marginally side? So the reality is we knew within five minutes, this is going to be a difficult rule to implement. And and the other thing with that is in marking contests, what you're looking at is the um, opponent has done something that stopped his opponent's ability to contest the mark. And with hands in the back, a lot of times when you paid the free kick, the guy didn't even know it was his free kick because he didn't feel anything. He didn't feel a push or any of that sort of stuff. So, yeah, there's times where I think that it would be beneficial. And, look, I must say, though, in fairness, is that all these rule changes, they're thought through pretty well. Like they, go, they go through all of the data. They gather it all in. They start to get working parties together as to um, what would assist in, you know, opening up the game, for instance, if that's what they're that's what they want to do and then they yeah come up with some rule changes and yeah basically we got to- we get told what they are um and our jobs to to implement it and you know i suppose that's one of the things that needs to get explained to everybody is we don't agree with all of these rules our job's just to implement them can i just put you on the spot sean um the three best players you've ever seen and some of which we might all agree with could you give us also a player that might surprise us as to one of the best you've ever seen in your time in the trenches James Hurd's probably the best I've seen. And I think that's because I had a lot of games where he just tore it up. And I know he's in the discussion generally, the top five or 10 of all time, but I had games where he would come back off a 16-week break, a horrific injury, and just get 27 touches, kick five goals and just tear it up. First game back. So he was amazing. I love Buddy Franklin when he's on song. He's just uh, incredible. Yeah, I think sort of, you know, your Gary Ablett's and Dusty Martins, you know, they're just, just been incredible. The guy, I don't know if you remember a guy called Max Rook for Geelong, Jared Rook. So he, he was crazy. Like he was just the toughest guy I've ever seen. He would just, he would just run into packs with no regard for his safety at all. And uh, I think everyone at Geelong just loved him. You know, he, you know, he probably played. 90, 100 games of footy, but um, I think it was 09 grand final. He was just kamikaze and he was just, just smashing into packs. And uh, he was a guy that whenever he was even a half right, they'd just pick him because he seemed to lift their team. He was one that you probably wouldn't hear much about, but was uh, if he was going well, Geelong were going well. Sean, uh, we'll get you out of here on this one. Now, you've retired once before. This is your second retirement. Uh, any, any chance of you doing a Johnny Farnham and coming back again? <laughs> uh, reminds me of a, a funny. There is no chance to answer your question, but um, <laughs> the, the, one of my mates texted me and um, after I retired and said, "I'm calling bullshit. I've heard this before." <laughs> <laughs> so um, no, no chance. I'd, I'd probably be 46 or 47 if I was to come back, but um, no, I'm. Uh, I'm in a really good space. You know, I've got things to go to. I've got um, a busy work practice, family. So, yeah, I'm, lo- I'm really, to be honest, I'm really looking forward to it. It can be quite exhausting, that balance. Um, and so to take one significant thing out of that um, is going to yeah, make it a lot easier. And I'm really, yeah, really looking forward to, forward to that. Thanks for listening to the Sports Fan Radio podcast. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and tell a friend. You can get more Sports Fan Radio at our YouTube channel.